beforehand, you cannot take a nap no matter how much you want to. Because if I don't sleep, you can't sleep, right? I will embarrass you if you're falling asleep. Um, so this summer, we are reading from the book of Exodus, which is perhaps um, the most significant and formative story in all of the Old Testament. And if you remember, the whole story began during a catastrophic famine in Egypt and the surrounding area that just devastated kind of the southeast Mediterranean region, including this little corner of ancient Canaan up there kind of to the right, a place called Hebron, which, which is where uh, the family of Jacob was from. And um, during this famine, the working class was hit particularly hard. Most of them had to sell off their lands for pennies on the dollar and go to places like Egypt to find work and food. Egypt had this guy, Joseph, connected to Jacob's family, who predicted the famine and under his leadership built massive food stores um, through seven years of good harvest for Egypt so that when the famine hit, people started to starve and come from all over the region just desperate to find food to stay alive, Pharaoh had a monopoly on food. And people would just hand over their family fortune for a few sacks of grain. They would work on his big building projects for, you know, just sacks of grain, enough to keep their families alive. And so it was a massive transfer of wealth and land to Pharaoh and Egypt's ruling class. And this should be kind of a situation that we all feel familiar with. Like, for instance, in the wake of a global pandemic, we have learned that the richest 1% of Americans gained over $7 trillion of wealth from the end of March to the end of December in 2020. Pretty stunning. It's just what always happens in times of hardship. The wealthy take advantage of other people's vulnerability. Um, for instance, in the, in the years following the 08 recession in America, the wealthiest 7% saw their share of the nation's wealth grow by 28%. The other 93%, they saw their share of wealth fall by 4%. If you go way back even further, like um, the, the Great Depression, for instance, if you adjust for inflation, there were more millionaires created during the Great Depression than at any other era in U.S. history, while at the same time, fully one-third of all Americans went just belly up, completely broke. And this is part of why we read the Old Testament, because we're not the first people in history to face these kinds of problems. They're old, old problems, and we're not the first people to reach out to God for wisdom when we do, and to see how God reacts to things like systemic injustice and how we should act faithfully in our own time. So, so in a time of famine, the rich got even richer. This is nothing new. And Egypt became um, even more of the most advanced empire in the ancient world. Remember, they're advanced in architecture, engineering, mathematics. They, were, they excelled in the arts. And um, they had great laws. They had civil rights, for heaven's sakes. They had a powerful military and an even more powerful economy. And, and, and it was so powerful that even those on the bottom in, in Egypt could usually find a way to flourish as well, at least as long as the pharaoh was feeling good about things. But then last week, we, we talked about how um, 
Pharaoh kind of did not yadah, did not know, lost the memory of what Joseph had done for Egypt and his people, his family, living there in Goshen. And yet the children of Israel flourished and grew, so much so that Pharaoh started to feel threatened by them. And so he began to oppress the people through systemic injustices. He put um, taskmasters over them, began a military Occupation. He asked the midwives, remember, to, to kill all the Hebrew babies, to make them think there was a plague coming for them. And, and, and they, of course, refused to in this first act of civil disobedience in the scriptures. And that, that chapter ends with, it says, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Every boy, Hebrew boy, that is born, throw in the river, but let all the girls live. This is how the first chapter of Exodus comes to an end, with Pharaoh authorizing all Egyptians to, to murder any Hebrew male that's born. And, and we're sort of meant to see that it's been accelerating here, his anxiety and his foolishness. And there's nothing Pharaoh won't do to protect his power and privilege. And so we pick up the story then in chapter 2. It says, a certain man of the house of Levi went and married a Levite Woman. So right here we're told Moses is born into a family that will one day become Israel's priests, the Levites. Later we'll learn his parents. Well, they're named several different ways, but we'll call them um, Amran and Jochebed. And it says, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw how beautiful he was, she hid him for three months. The word there, the mother saw how tov he is, uh, he, he was. It means good, goodly, healthy. Um, it can mean beautiful. One of the um, Maimonides, or the Rambam, one of the rabbis, he notes that it's strange because, you know, all mothers think their own babies are tov, are beautiful, right? And so why even mention that if there's not some other point? He says the other point is it's pointing back to Genesis where God would create each day and then say, and it was tov, it was good. So it's linking these stories through this word tov. It's linking Moses and his birth to the story of creation. If you remember in our origin stories, um, there are two creation narratives there in the first few chapters. And, and each, in each one, there's some kind of tension wired into creation from the very start. There's the threat of chaos symbolized by the waters and the threat of barrenness symbolized by the desert. And Jochebed here is facing both of those tensions, chaos in the waters of the Nile and barrenness at the prospect of losing a child. And this one little word, tov, good, draws all this to mind for Hebrew-speaking readers, not so much for us, but we can translate and know it. There, this is meant to kind of signal there's a new creative era in history that's being inaugurated here. And so it says, when she could hide him no longer, she got a wicker basket for him and caulked it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child into it and placed it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister, that's Miriam, we know, stationed herself at a distance to learn what would befall him. So Jochebed, his mom, got for him, it says, a tevat gome. It's, um, gome means papyrus, but teva does not mean basket. It means ark. That's what that word means. Teva appears 26 times in the story of Noah. Every time it's translated ark. This is not a basket. This is an ark, right? She built him an ark 
Tevat out of papyrus. So this is an allusion again to Genesis and the Noah story here and the waters. And the, the rabbis say that, that um, under this kind of Pharaoh's murderous decree, that they think Hebrew mothers didn't just like walk up to the Nile and, and throw their kids into it. The, their practice was they would weave small little baskets and set the babies afloat on the baskets out into the Nile. And the basket would sink, but much further down and out in the middle where they didn't have to watch. But Jokovet here seals her basket with bitumen and pitch with, to make it waterproof. Seals him inside this little, um, little ark, like Moses, or like Noah. It's sort of a, a womb-like structure containing the baby on the waters. She doesn't float it down the, uh, the, the river. She places it in among the reeds on the bank. It's kind of a little gestation type of symbol. And then stations her daughter Miriam to keep watch. By the way, we should notice that only the women are active in this story opposing Pharaoh. All the men are either babies or bystanders, right? The, the only, only the daughters are doing stuff except for Pharaoh. All of them taking risks and showing great courage. Also, we should note that water is a huge theme here and will be throughout um, the story of Exodus, through Moses' entire life. There's kind of the primordial chaotic waters. There's the amniotic sense of waters with Moses sealed inside this little womb floating like Noah in his little ark upon the waters of chaos, placed carefully in the water among the reeds. This kind of points us to the sea of reeds, which will they'll pass through the waters there later on. And the waters of the Nile, the Yeor, the great river, that are meant to be the means of destruction end up being the means of deliverance. And in this situation, it's flooded with waters, and it's flooded with irony as Jokved follows Pharaoh's command. She does what she's supposed to do. She throws her kid into the Nile, but in, the, in a waterproof, you know, ark. It's, it's this really, it's the second act of civil disobedience here in this early story. Then we're told the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the Nile while her maidens walked along the Nile. And she spied the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to fetch it. When she opened it, she saw that it was a child, a boy, crying. Language is, is kind of interesting here in the Hebrew. It, it would be something like she opened, she saw a boy child, behold, weeping. And the rabbis note that it does not say she heard the child. Twice it says she saw, beheld him crying. Ever, ever seen a baby cry silently? This is big old alligator tears coming down their cheeks. You know what I mean? It's different. If a baby's like screaming bloody murder, this can produce many different emotions in the people who are around it. But this, a baby like crying silently, it will break your heart, right? It's devastating. And that it, so it's indicating a kind of just sadness to this. The rabbis say we're meant to um, conjure up images of all the Hebrew boys born to Hebrew families under Pharaoh's murderous decree who were kept quiet all along. Don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. All of them, don't cry, don't cry. Don't be found out. Don't let us keep this child as long as we can, right? This silent weeping just filled the land of Goshen, right? It's supposed to 
raise the stakes here. So Pharaoh's daughter comes down, and it says she took pity on it and said, this must be a Hebrew child. Then his sister, Miriam, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go get you a Hebrew nurse to suckle the child for you? Notice that it's actually Miriam who suggests the whole adoption scheme. This doesn't even come from Pharaoh's daughter. It's, it's from Miriam, of course, by way of Moses' mother. And Pharaoh's daughter answered, yes. It's kind of a, I don't know, why not? Hell, it's the money. Let's do this. And, and so the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me, and I will pay your wages. This is like a huge ironic moment. And by the way, it's the third act of civil disobedience carried out by Pharaoh's own daughter who rescues this little Hebrew child and enters into it. It's, it, the translation would be, it's a wet nurse agreement. There are, um, these contracts survive in the historical record all over. Um, it was very common, a wealthy um, woman would hire a peasant woman to feed and house and tutor their child, either till they were weaned like two, three years, or in Egypt, adulthood began at 10. And so it, it, there's good reason to think here in the text, maybe, maybe it was even 10 years they got to raise Moses. Um, we don't really know. What we do know is that Pharaoh's daughter violates the king's decree. And so the woman, um, Jochebed, took the child, her baby, Moses, and nursed it. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. She, she followed through on her promise. Who made him her son. She named him Moses, explaining, I drew him out of the water. So the boy's name here, in Hebrew, it's Moshe, Moshe. And it's, um, it's not a Hebrew name. It's an Egyptian name. Um, in Egyptian, it just means to be or to be born of. It's often actually a suffix um, tacked onto another Egyptian name, like, um, they're, they're, um, like the gods um, Thut Moshe or Ra Moshe. It means born of Thut or, or Ra. It sounds more like the Hebrew word Masha, but it's not. It's, it's Moshe. But she's a little confused. She doesn't know Hebrew super well. But she kind of is explaining to them. It's meant to be kind of funny. She's explaining, but she's explaining wrong. Um, and, and so this is how kind of that part of the story ends with um, Moshe being presented to the princess and being brought, I mean, he's brought into the house of Pharaoh. Now, let's talk a little bit about Pharaoh. Um, for a moment. His, his title is Pharaoh, Paro. Um, it comes from two Egyptian words, great and house. So Paro means great house. It's the, it was probably the early form that just talked about the palace of the king. Like we would say the White House, like the White House released a statement today, like we give it agency or the palace had no comment. It, they, they just referred to the great house so much, they just started the guy, calling the guy in it Paro, great house. It just became the name of the king. And Paro, or Pharaoh, then comes to hold great symbolic meaning in the scriptures. The name Pharaoh becomes a symbol for um, any emperor. Walter Brueggemann, um, he says this, I've heard him say it dozens of times. He says, if you've seen one Pharaoh, you've seen them all, because they all act alike. Um, and so this uh, Pharaoh is symbolic of empire and the emperor um, from the, the pharaohs of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar of 
Babylon to Cyrus, Persia, Alexander the Great, all the different Caesars, the Herods, and then Egypt, Mitzrayim, as we learned last week, either the country, the nation, or the people, um, is symbolic of empire itself. Um, and to this day, kind of the most recognizable symbol of Egypt is the Great Pyramids, um, which symbolizes both the greatness of Egypt, but also the way that Egypt was structured. It was organized as a pyramid. And Paro went at the top of the pyramid, at the apex of the entire Egyptian empire. And all empires have kind of, they track along the same behaviors, same way of doing things. Walter Brueggemann, again, he has, he has a set of three, and I've kind of adapted them, so don't tag him with all of this, but this is really his idea. Emperor, empires do many other things as well, but they almost always do these three, and it's part of how you know they're an empire. First, empires commodify everything. They turn everything into a product that can be given some sort of market value, can be treated as if its value is its true nature, is what it is. And its nature is to be bought and sold and traded and possessed and, and consumed. That's what it's for. That's the first thing you can do. Second thing is empires then extract that wealth and value and transfer it toward the top of the pyramid. And this is done by way of systems or a bureaucracy, systems of economics and taxation, of markets, law and commerce, education and politics, social systems of class, race or gender, systems of philosophy, science, industry, all of the have, them having their own kind of peculiar function, but their general function that they share in common is to move wealth and power and privilege up the pyramid toward the top. And then the third thing empires always do is they use violence to protect and preserve the system in its current form. And this can be kind of the ubiquitous physical violence, you know, from sticks and stones to, to swords and spears to bows and arrows and then gunpowder and, you know, smart bombs and biological weapons. But then there's, there's also this... Um, you, uh, maybe you could call it a narrative or mythical or ideological kind of violence. You know, almost always the justification for physical violence comes in the form of a story or a narrative and, or, or an ideology. Often, we have to admit, combined with a religion that is, is kind of sold or enforced among the people as just common sense. This conventional wisdom. This is the way the world is. We don't really want it to be that way, but that's the way the world is, and that's why we have to, you know, kill some people, right? So, and this, this is used, it's like, it's that matter of fact, to convince people the way things are is the way they have to be, the way they have to stay. And so they tell their story, um, their ideology about the world, and, and then any violence can be justified in order to preserve this system. That is self-evidently the way the world is supposed to be, right? And, I mean, you, you look at these things, and we have to confess. I mean, this is, this is the world we live in. This is the way our society acts, like an empire. And this is the nature of all empires. 
They all do at least these three things. They do lots of great things too, but they all do at least these three things. And so when the Bible talks about Egypt, Mitzrayim, or Pharaoh, Paro, they, they are symbols of this structure of empire. They commodify things, they give it value, they make that value transferable, and then they make systems that transfer that value up to the top, and then they enforce the whole thing with violence and narrative and ideology. And um, the weight of all of it, just like with, with the um, pyramids, the weight rests on those at the bottom of the pyramid. That's how this works. Now, Pharaoh's daughter, in this narrative, plays an interesting role. She actually prefigures Yahweh's response to the empires of the world. It's Pharaoh's daughter. The verbs actually kind of tell the story. It says, Pharaoh's daughter comes down, sees the child, hears the cry, takes pity, draws out of the water, and provides daily needs. This is how Pharaoh's daughter responds to the child Moses. And we're meant to see this is also, it's prefiguring, it's kind of foreshadowing how Yahweh will respond to the children of Israel, or really anybody who's at the bottom of the pyramid starting here in Egypt. God will come down, see the plight, hear the cry, take pity, draw them out, and then provide for their needs. The twist is, the way that God ends up going about this, God's mode of action, because it always has this kind of ironic twist. And so here God's setting up this clash between these two sort of rival visions of the world. On one side, you've got the empire, Mitzrayim, Egypt, and, and Paro, the pharaoh, symbolized by the pyramid, right? And then on the other side, you've got um, Am B'nai Israel, remember the children, the sons of Israel, the children of Israel, the, the sons of Moshe, and these daughters, these faithful daughters, and they're symbolized really by the daughters here in this story who are used by God to subvert the powers of Pharaoh. So you've got Shifra and Pua, the midwives from last week. You've got Jochebed and Miriam here. You've got Pharaoh's daughter prefiguring Yahweh's response. These five brave women, all of them doing some form of civil disobedience in stark contrast to Pharaoh and empire. And in the story, God vindicates one and judges the other. And so what we end up with is this story that's full of ironies. Listen to these. This is the list I could come up with. I'm sure there are more. The Nile, um, which is the jewel of Israel, right? It's the source of their wealth and their strength as a nation. Instead of destroying Moses, the Nile ends up saving him. The, it's the daughters that Pharaoh's not afraid to. It's explicit in the text. Kill the boys, let the daughters live. It's the daughters who start the whole exodus. It's the mother who saves the child, ironically, by following the king's decree. She throws the kid in the Nile. Um, it's Pharaoh's own daughter who saves the very child who will be the downfall of the father, her father at the top of the pyramid, right? A royal princess here is taking advice from a Hebrew slave, and she just goes along with it. It was like, she, the girl's like, these are not the droids you're, droids you're looking for. And she was like, yeah, that's right, let's do that. And, and, and the, Moses' own mother 
is found um, getting to keep her child, do what she wants to do, only now she's getting paid for it. And who's paying for it? Pharaoh, the house of Pharaoh is paying her. And as the text comes to a close today, Moses is drawn inside the very regime and is going to be taught the ways, the systems, and their weaknesses so that he is like uniquely positioned to take the system down, undermine it. And then the princess names the boy, and it's a mistake. She doesn't know Hebrew very well. She names him Draw, draw him out, which ends up being exactly what he does for all of Israel. And then the, the fate, finally, the fate that Pharaoh meant for Moses is waiting for Pharaoh at the end of this part of the story. I mean, that's crazy, right? All of these ironic twists. And this is, we're meant to see this is how God works. They're, these are the main features. I mean, they aren't like subplots. These are the main points of the whole story all of them with this weird, ironic inversion. What we thought was going to happen isn't what happens. And instead of empire exploiting vulnerability like it always does during whatever, a pandemic or a, a, a depression or a financial collapse, instead of empire capitalizing, exploiting the vulnerable, vulnerability winds up being the means of deliverance. And it kind of subverts empire. So we have Pharaoh, who built, I mean, it's the greatest empire of the age, like unequivocally. But he had to oppress millions on the bottom of the pyramid in order to do it. And so he lived in fear of them uprising against him. And it was really that fear that made him do crazy things. It's not smart things. Um, most of the pharaohs, by the way, maybe even um, in a miraculous sense over their history, pharaohs were pretty just guys for the most part. They were decent kings. I mean, this, this dynasty lasted a long time for the ancient world, a long time, because they were mostly pretty good guys. This, this one, this one could not handle the growth of the Hebrew people, and it made him crazy. All that power, it just made him think he could control everything. But his empire um, was actually so fragile that it was vulnerable, not so much to like armies or droughts even, but vulnerable to small acts of compassion and love. And that's the Achilles heel, always, of empires. Our personal ones and, and the ones out there in human societies. They're vulnerable to love. I mean, many a strong and, you know, commanding father has been played like a drum by some little daughter, right, somewhere. Everything's vulnerable to love, everything. And, and often in the story of God, it's the daughters who signify this. Think of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Miriam. Um, Ruth, Esther, for heaven's sakes, just kind of subversively leading behind the scenes. Later on in the New Testament, Mary. Daughters become symbols of love, overcoming injustice and empire and power. And often this love takes the form of some kind of civil disobedience, some kind of resistance. So 
and, and the form of it, its action, ends up exploiting the empire's weakness, its vulnerability to love. And so on one side, you got the, the ways of empires that are fearful and violent. They have power and are ruthless and aggressive with the use of that power. And on the other side are the daughters who are loving. They just love, walk around loving, nonviolent. They have um, weakness to bring to the table and compassion, which turns out to be subversive to empire. And, and the story of Exodus makes this wild claim, different from any other claim for a God in the ancient world, that when, when this God moves against injustice, systemic injustice, God does not use the means of empire. And the stuff on the left, God uses the mode of the daughters on the right. And before the story is over, it will be a bunch of immigrants and daughters and babies who bring low the most powerful empire on the planet. And so here in these opening chapters, we see the story of Exodus um, is really meant to, they work hard in the first couple of chapters to, sit, to situate it on par with the story of creation. And really say, you know, there's, there's a new paradigm for how the world is to be organized here. And, and in terms of its importance, it sits with Genesis. This new paradigm of how God works in the world, that it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, the spirit of love and compassion. And we'll see it over and over in the book of Exodus. We'll read it in all kinds of the big mythic stories, like David and Goliath or Elijah facing down um, Ahab and the queen. We'll hear it in things like Mary's prayer, may it be unto me according to your word, or Mary's song, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. We'll see it in, in the Apostle Paul to, saying to the church, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things, the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And ultimately, of course, we'll see it in this, this Messiah who comes, choosing disciples from out of Galilee. I mean, this is the sticks who made feasts for everyone out of just a few loaves and fish, who stood beside the woman caught in adultery, who made friends out of tax collectors and prostitutes, who forgave people just offering grace free of charge, and then who died on a cross while forgiving the people who put him there. What we're seeing in Exodus is, is the birth of this central theme that will be woven throughout the scriptures. It's there in almost every story where God gets his way. And it all starts here in Egypt with these ironic twists and these faithful daughters, daughters who subvert the empire through selfless acts of love and compassion. It's awesome. And so for thousands of years now, anytime the people of God bump up against the, the principalities and powers, the empires and systems that are getting the best of the vulnerable, those in the margins. And folks like us, just normal folks like you and me, feel like we can't make a difference. We're just stuck in this unjust system and we're, we're, there's nothing we can do. What we're told is, tell this story. Tell these stories of the Exodus. They can, they can fill us with hope. 
And when we're tempted to lose heart or be cynical or despair, our ancestors taught us to tell these stories of the daughters of the Exodus and remember that God always uses the, the weak things, the foolish things to shame the wise. And somehow, just telling these stories and drawing out the irony and just kind of getting a little chuckle, the chuckle that you get from the underside of history, that, that they'll begin to reorient us, to fill us with hope, even in the midst of the worst of circumstances. When fearful leaders tried to use their power to control the world, they all do the same thing. And if we can spot it in one, we can spot it in all of them. We can spot it, by the way, in ourselves, in places where we have power. We commodify, um, assign things value, extract the value, move it up toward us, right? And, and then enforce this with story and narrative and ideology, saying this is just the way it has to be. And this is how we build systems of injustice. But here's the thing. Those who follow Jesus can never go along with these things. We just can't. No matter how much we have ideology, even sometimes religion, that reinforces power, things like racism, things like patriarchy, we, we can't resort to those things just so that we can feel safe and in control. Our task really is to, is to look to the daughters who faced down the Pharaoh and opposed evil with love and to resist it creatively through acts of, I don't know, civil disobedience, if necessary. Presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. It's worship. And then somehow God will pick that up and use it to, to put things to right in the world. Even if we're at the bottom of the pyramid, it can change the situation for everyone. So we don't have to despair. That's the good news. We don't have to despair even though it just seems like we can't change anything. Our world is such a mess. We are in such, oh my gosh, we are in such turmoil and warring tribes. I mean, anybody feel just like, ugh, what can I even do? It's so jacked up. I don't know what you can do. Just tell the story. Just tell the stories over and over. Look to the daughters, laugh at the irony of it, and then try to see if it will instill in you some hope and enough imagination to see how maybe you can in a small little way, change the system. And I really do think, I mean, it's really timely that we're, we're ending up in Exodus right now. Um, just to remember, be reminded, even our little acts of ironic civil disobedience that may seem insignificant, insignificant to us, even some little ragamuffin church like this, I mean, this is always who God chooses in the story to help turn the tides of history back toward justice. And we can have hope that, that God is a God who will come down and see us and hear the cry and have compassion on us and draw us out and provide for our needs. And so we can hope, we can dare to hope that even our little lives and our little church, if, if it takes the form of cruciform love, it can make a difference. Never know how the smallest thing you might do in your life and today uh, may impact tomorrow. I mean, you might be floating some future Moses around just by your small little acts of, of resistance. And it's, it really is little ragamuffin communities like this who keep 
the story alive. And among us, it, it really starts with learning to serve each other. That's, that's why it's so important to find a ministry team and serve around here somewhere. Sign up for something. We got kids ministry that needs help. We got um, soccer camps coming, food pantries. There are ways to engage and serve those who are on the bottom of the pyramid. And in the task of loving one another, to show that we actually really do believe that, that God is putting the world to rights. I love this story. I hope that you'll be um, as, I don't know, possessed by it as I am. I can't stop thinking about it. Um, these, these crazy daughters. So funny and, and so beautiful. This is, this is what, what we're looking for. This is what will fill us with hope. Let's pray. God, we want so much to be part of your church that turns the tides of history back toward love and toward your kingdom. And we do believe that your kingdom is uh, its a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of compassion and grace and mercy where those who follow you can just selflessly lay down our lives and pour our lives out for one another, knowing that you'll just keep pouring it on, pouring it more life in. I don't know if we can fix our society, but I really believe in this place, God. I pray that you would um, keep energizing and inspiring us to learn how to love each other and serve each other. And that you'll keep sending us out into our neighborhoods and our families, our workplaces, and our friendships to be your hands and feet in this, in this world. Fill us with hope, we pray. We love you, God. Amen. I invite you to stand, and we're going to receive communion. Hopefully you got our little um, shrink-wrapped elements when you came in. If you didn't, Beth is in the middle, in the back with a basket. You can grab some. I invite you just to hold them in front of you as, as we bless them. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup also, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he said, as often as you gather, eat this bread, drink this cup, and remember my death until I come again. All right, so this is, this is the task of the church. This is why we do this every week. We come together and we remember, it's, oh, it's this body. It's his way. It's his blood. We receive this into our life. We become um, made of it and then sent in the world to be the hands and feet of Christ. This is the miracle that's happening. And um, so this is why we receive communion each week. And we invite you just to hold it and let's pray a blessing over it. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing on the bread and the cup, may it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light 
and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I invite you to receive communion and join us in our closing song.